Mmm, audio parfait. Exhausted from five weeks of William S. Burroughs. Yes. Yeah. Can't yes. do that anymore. No. Well, luckily for everybody, uh, this series won't be anything like that one. It won't be as long. The episodes won't be as long. Hopefully. And uh, fingers crossed. A, a little bit less pedophilia than last time. A little bit less drug use. Little bit. A little bit. As in <clears throat> none. Oh, good. However, good. that doesn't mean it's going to be a happy story. There's a lot of struggle and uh, unfortunately doesn't end very well, but that's life. It life, is life. Life rarely ends very well. I mean, you can look at uh, Mark Twain had a nice long life. Dog wants to come outside with us if you can hear that. Mark Twain had a nice long life. And uh, even though it, it's sad to see somebody die... And he had a, he had a lot of loss throughout his life. At the end of, at the end of it, I, I think it was fairly happy. Same with uh, Harper Lee, even though her life was fairly boring. Still, yeah, nice long life. Um, she lived it the way she wanted to. Burroughs definitely lived it the way he wanted to. Nice long life, and I mean, he died of a heart attack in his eighties. Not a bad one. Robert E. Howard, however. Pretty sad how that ended. I feel like this story will end worse than that. Um, but it is what it is. It's kind of how it goes. We'll find out along the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's the exciting part. All right. Well, guys, welcome to Open a Fucking Book. Yeah. I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. And uh, we got a brand new author. We're starting a brand new series. It'll be a three-parter. So still, you know, not not a simple one and done which we haven't done yet. We will, but we haven't done that yet. But not a big five-part epic like what we had last time. Who is it? <laughs> okay. So, let's. Uh, I guess we'll just get right into it. So, uh, we're going to have a first on this one. Uh, for one, it's our second female author. Go women. Yes. Well, and, and go women is a big part of Everything she's about. So a lot of you are going to be going, go women through a lot of it. I certainly was reading through it. I was like, fuck yeah. Um, second, we are going back further than we have ever gone before. Before it was Mark Twain, 1800s. It's the furthest we had gone back. We talked about his father, his grandfather. It's not the furthest we will ever go back, obviously. Um, Shakespeare's before this and everything, and eventually somewhere down the road we'll cover him. But we're going all the way back to the mid to late 18th century, so the 1700s. So Ooh. we're going way far. And our first ever non-American author. So we're going, I mean, Burroughs went overseas a lot. Twain went overseas a lot. But she is born and lives her entire life in Europe. She wanted to come to America, never got the chance. So our first non-American author. So going international. Ooh, fancy. So the author we are covering on this series can look 
be looked up to by almost every independent woman alive. If you're a woman, you say, I don't need a man. This is the woman you should look to. In a time when women were expected to act a certain way, go without proper education, find a husband as soon as possible, obey their husband no matter what. In a time when men were more, more or less owned their families, their wives and children were technically, legally, their property. Yeah, bullshit. Before marital rape was even a thing, women weren't allowed divorces, and on the rare chance that they were, they almost always got out penniless and childless because the children belonged to the fathers. Women could be institutionalized by their husbands for simply wanting to work outside the home, be put in a, in a sane asylum, or if they just refuse to have sex with their husbands, they could be put in an insane asylum. Yeah, I've I've seen the list of things that could put women in an insane asylum from back then. Yeah. Trying to read, um, complaining about uh, cramps. Uh, yeah, just crazy shit. Yes, that it, 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 fucked it's, up. It's, it's it's horrible. They were forced to look the other way while their husband had sometimes several affairs. They could do what they wanted. Couldn't get a divorce for it. This woman stood against society norms, pushed back against the status quo. And even though she did eventually become a mother and a wife, she never stopped speaking for the voiceless. Not just women, but slaves, the poor, and the people willing to stand with her against the, the aristocratic Hierarchy. It wasn't hierarchy. Hierarchy. It wasn't the aristocratic hierarchy. It wasn't forming in my brain the way it should. That held down the masses. She believed the best thing you could do for a person, boy or girl, rich or poor, was educate them. She was an educator. She was the original feminist. She was a revolutionary. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the hard-nosed, stubborn, loud, in your face, and sometimes her own worst enemy, Mary Wollstonecraft. Pretty much me. <laughs> I, I kept telling myself while I was reading this, man, this is my wife. God, this seems a lot like my wife. She's, she's beautiful. She's voluptuous. She's super smart. She's opinionated. She doesn't hold back. She tells you exactly what she thinks. Even in situations that it harms her greatly. She does not keep her mouth shut. And that is my wife to a T. Yeah, I have no filter. You really don't. You've had to kind of develop one. Around be, your family. around my family so we don't get, you know, Because your family's out. far too sensitive. And they can be. It's, it's ridiculous. They can be. It's, ugh, I hate having to keep my mouth shut. I know. So our main source for this series is the book Romantic Outlaws by Charlotte Gordon. Uh, there are several books out there about Wollstonecraft, but this one, the author seems to be on Mary's side, which I think is good. Now, usually with the biography, you want some form of unbiasedness, but with Mary, you really need someone on her side, or else the viewpoint from the men in her life really take over, and that's not what we want. Her legacy has had enough hurdles to jump over as it is. If you are in the camp of people who have heard of Mary Wollstonecraft, congratulations, because you are in the minority. 
I had no idea who she was until I started researching for the show. And when I started looking at her story, I was like, holy shit, why don't I know about her? Because she's not really taught in schools. She's taught in literature in colleges. That's how I knew about not, her. Not until the 70s. She went 200 plus years. The only people that really talked about her were people like Virginia Woolf. She wasn't in colleges. She was a pariah. And you'll find out in episode three all that. At the very end of episode three, when it's really depressing, it's just going to get worse. And you'll find out why people looked at her the way they looked at her. Um, but finally, with, with you know the women's movement, it kind of brought it to life of who she was and, and what she stood for. But until But from the time she dies until then... She was cast in a very ugly light. Well, yeah, she was challenging the norms. Well, but that's not why she... You'll find out. That's not why she's cast in an ugly light. It, what happens to her legacy is a travesty, and it, 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 it'll drive you crazy when you hear about it. Probably. But we'll get to that later. First, got to cover her childhood and her family. We got it. We have to get to know the woman. That's right. So, here we go. Of Mary Wollstonecraft, part one. Mary Wollstonecraft was born April 27th, 1759, in Spitalfields, London. She was the, sec the second of seven children of Elizabeth Dixon and Edward John Wollstonecraft. Her siblings were her older brother and her mother's favorite, Ned. Her younger siblings were Henry, Eliza, Everina, James, and Charles. Her grandfather, Edward Sr., was actually the owner of a profitable silk business. He wanted to leave his son enough money and status so he could give his family the life he didn't have. But Edward Jr. was nothing like Edward Sr. Mary was sent off to a wet nurse for the first year of her life, never being breastfed by her mother or given any real love at all. Pretty much all the love her mother had to give, she gave to Ned. Everybody else just... It was there. They kind of existed in her world. They didn't get to enjoy it. Something like that. The love. Well, and it wasn't just they didn't get to enjoy the love. Is she was kind. She was a a total bitch to her and her sisters. The boys got got some love. Ned got the most. Henry, James, and Charles got some, but her, Eliza, and Everina could not. She could not give a shit less. And same what goes for their father. That's that's messed up. Now, so the for the first four years of her life, they lived on Primrose Street, a dirty, violent, class-driven set of neighborhoods in lower-class London. It is here in the Spitalfield, in where it is called Spitalfield's Jaundice, or injustice of the poor inflicted by the wealthy, cemented into into Mary's head. This is this even those first four years of just being there seeing the upper class keep the lower class down, buried into her head, and it stays with her forever. It does. Motivi motivated by his thoughts of being as good as everyone else, Edward Sr. set his son and family up in an old mansion in Epping, about 15 miles north of London. It had woods and ponds and meadows and an upper middle class scene that Edward Jr. could squeeze into as a respectable farmer and family man. Mary loved it. A tomboy at heart, she would run through the fields and climb trees to watch the clouds roll by. 
Also, being ever so careful to stay out of her brother Ned's, or as Mary liked to call him, the deputy tyrant of the house, his line of sight. He would torture insects, small animals, and his siblings. It was Mary's job to protect them. Ned could do no wrong in his mother's eyes, and since he was the oldest, it was his birthright to do whatever he wanted. You all right over there? Older sibling syndrome. Yeah. Well, and you're a middle child, so you get it from both ends. You get the older sibling syndrome and you get the younger sibling syndrome, which is what I, you know, where I come from because I'm the youngest. And you're the favorite and the most spoiled. I'm not. I'm not spoiled. (laughs) I'm not going to argue with the other one. Uh, So she also tried to protect her mother. From her father, Edward was Edward was a drunk and a fiend, and would blow up into wild outbursts for almost no reason at all. One second he would be kissing his family, the next he would be slapping children and flipping over tables. Mary hated her father's brutality, but in an ironic twist, she would inherit most of the traits that made her so influential in life: her disdain for authority, ferocious temper, hatred of restrictions, her rage, stubbornness, and the feeling of being entitled to a better life. After a year in Epping, Ed moved the family to to a house closer to his favorite pub so he wouldn't have to travel so far to drink. <laughs> he would come home drunk, rape and beat his wife. It got to where Mary would sleep in front of the door at six years old and try to stop him from entering. But Elizabeth claimed she was just making it worse. Edward would try to go in. Mary would stand there and try to keep him out. And it would just piss him off more to where he'd go in. And he beat Elizabeth even worse than what he would have before. But she's six. She's just trying to do what she thinks she's supposed to be doing, which is protecting her mother. Yeah, even though her mother didn't care about her. Still her mom. Yeah. That's going to be a a relationship between the two you'll see for a while. Elizabeth's all about herself, and Mary cares about her and her family more than anything else for a while. Soon, Edward Sr. died, leaving his son 10,000 pounds, which is a lot of money. Most uh, conversion charts don't go back that far, but uh, I think it was like later on you find out 10 pounds is worth like, oh, I can't even remember. It, it, it's like damn near probably about a million dollars. Which back then is... It's a lot of fucking money. Yeah. This was Edward Jr.'s opportunity to improve the family's fortune and provide his daughters with a dowry. But, instead of investing in a business he knew something about, or at the very least saving for the future, Edward moved his family to an expensive estate near Barking, a market town eight miles east of London. This new home, far grander than he could afford, suited his inflated sense of what the world owed him. In Barking, he and Elizabeth while away their time dining with other wealthy families, making the occasional visits to the city where Elizabeth could shop and Edward could join the gentlemen who tip-tapped down Primrose Street with their white-knobbed canes. You know, you, you know what you think of the tuxedo, the top hat, the white gloves, and the white hood. <laughs> so they walked so down they, the street. So that they could, you know, push it in other people's face that that they were now wealthy. They were posing as wealthy people who only had a little, only had money for a short amount of time. Yes. Yes. And in 1768, when Mary was nine, Edward's money 
finally gave out. To avoid paying the landlord, he fled north with his family to Walkington. So English. A tiny village more than three miles from the closest town, Beverly, in East Riding. The land there was harsh and unforgiving for a farmer. The people were even worse. Mary was now tasked with caring for her younger siblings, as her mother just didn't want to. Mary would be punished for seemingly no reason, forced to sit next to the fireplace, I mean right next to a burning hot fireplace, for hours in complete silence. Ed was never able to farm the land, so in 1770, Mary was 11, he moved the family to Beverly. Minus Ned, who had gone to London for a law apprenticeship. It was a city around 5,000 people. To Mary, it was a sprawling metropolis with shops for pretty much everything. The most exciting part of the move was the opportunity to go to school. They had all learned to read at home, but she was hungry for more education. On the first morning of school, Henry and James trotted off to Beverly Grammar School to learn history, mathematics, and Latin. But when Mary, Eliza, and Everina arrived at the local girls' school, they found that their curriculum would be limited to needlework and simple addition. <sighs> That's fucked up. <clears throat> the other kids were mean and constantly made life hell for Mary and her siblings, except for one, Jane Arden who was a year older. Mary became fast friends with Jane, and maybe because of the lack of love given to Mary from her parents, she obsessed over Jane, getting mad if Jane even sat next to someone else in church. Mary loved Jane, told her several times that she didn't think she could live without her. This will be a pattern with Mary. She also adored Jane's father, John, who helped instill in her a love of science and literature encouraging her to learn at a time when it was unheard of for girls to show any signs of intelligence. 1774, Mary's father announced he had found a fresh business opportunity in Hoxton, a depressing village north of London, notorious for its three lunatic asylums. 15-year-old Mary would have to leave Jane behind. She was devastated. Hoxton was filled with lunatics, beggars, and prostitutes. It was dirty and cold. She li they lived down the street from one of the asylums, and uh, during the day, if there was a lull in the noise from, you know, just the village itself, she could hear the lunatics screaming through their windows. Oh, that's... Oh. And again, just like most of our authors, everything that she's experienced now will come back into play into her writing later. Even that. Not all of Mary's neighbors were lunatics, however. Dissenters from the Church of England, barred from attending other universities, flocked here, founded their own college, Huxton Academy, now part of New College London. Hoxton students were taught the radical principles that human beings were naturally good and had the right to be free. That's going to come into play. Well, uh, it's just the fact that they make a point of saying that it's a radical principle that humans should be free. It's, I mean, it's not radical. It's even in the Bible. But back then, it was a radical statement because every, everybody was being led by a dictatorship. That's true. This was the opposite teaching from that of the Church of England, which held that human beings were sinners and needed strict rules and authoritarian governments to contain their evil impulses. 
And even though the Hoxton boys would protest injustice all around Europe, even they didn't see how women were treated unfairly, or they just didn't care. Now, in 1775, while the oldest, Ned, 18, and her oldest, youngest, younger brother, Henry, 13, were both old enough to go out and get jobs and make lives for themselves at 13. You're a man. 15-year-old married. Well, we got plenty of 13, 14-year-olds. It's time for them to start working then, too. Well, child labor laws exist now, babe. That's true. 15-year-old Mary was the eldest daughter, so helping her mother take care of the house and the rest of her siblings fell on her. Problem was, her mother was constantly ill, reading, napping all day, so Mary also had to take care of her. This was a time when Mary was at her lowest. She didn't eat. She stopped washing her hair. She threw fits of rage that scared her because she didn't want to be like her father. And then Miss Claire, one of their neighbors, had noticed the change in Mary and invited her over for tea. The visit went so well that it became a common occurrence. Mrs. Clare would invite Mary to stay for days, sometimes weeks at a time. Elizabeth wanted her to stay home and take care of the house and her siblings, but didn't have the spine to do anything about it. And her father was gone drinking most of the time, didn't even notice she was gone. It was at the Clare house where Mr. Clare would introduce her to poetry and philosophy, specifically to the ideas of John Locke, whose writings had been banned by Oxford University in 1701, spurring dissenting liberals like Claire to study him with the kind of analytical fervor that had hitherto reserved for scripture. The great political philosopher's principles, creature of the same species and rank, should be equal, and a husband should have, quote, no more power over his wife's life than she has over his. Revitalized Mary. She had always felt her father had no right to be a tyrant to her family, and that the preferential treatment he and her mother bestowed on Ned was unjust. Now, after reading Locke, she had an, an ethical foundation for her feelings. Not only was it her right to shape her own future, it was everyone's right. In fact, Locke's social contract made protests seem the only rational response to injustice. It was humanity's obligation to overthrow tyranny, a government that does not protect the people's freedom is illegitimate. A father who abuses his wife and children forfeits his power. At the same time, Thomas Jefferson was scouring over Locke's writings to help him write a little thing of his own we like to call the Declaration of Independence. They use the, the work of the same exact person to form these very common views. She sticks with hers. We don't necessarily always. I was going to say with ours. Locke sounded familiar when you brought that up, yeah. and now I know where. If it your came teacher from. ever said if Thomas Jefferson was one of their students and wrote the Declaration of Independence, they would give him an F for plagiarism. That's why, because he copied most of the stuff from that, and from the the French Declaration of Independence. Paraphrasing. Though some of the stuff he pulls damn near verbatim. I know, but paraphrasing. It was also the Clares that would introduce Mary to the Bloods, friends who lived in the village of Newington Butts. And yes, it's Butts with two T's. 
It was here where Mary met, and this name is unfortunate, Fanny Blood. I hate it when you come across some Fanny Blood. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Their eldest daughter. That's the first place my, I, my mind went with it. Fanny Blood. <laughs> They had in common the fact that both of their fathers were alcoholics and gamblers, so even though Fanny's father wasn't violent, he couldn't hold down a job. It was Fanny's earnings as an artist and her mother's earnings as a seamstress that put food on the table. This showed Mary that it was possible for women to get by just fine without help from a man. Mary was enamored by Fanny. They began writing to each other, and Mary considered Fanny to be her new best friend. Now wanting more than anything to get a new home with Fanny and completely abandon any notion of marrying a man, a thought that she hated entirely. Her views on marriage were kind of skewed because of her parents. Yes. The mine were skewed for the longest time as well. Yes, they were. You wouldn't even say the M word for a long time. I kept you calling the, it you the M word. Uh, you wouldn't say the L word for a and long time. And I kept time. calling it the L word she as well. She changed her views because of me. I did, because I love you. Yeah, I'm that good. Her view on marriage was that <laughs> that it was just short of legalized rape. So the thought of living with Fanny, spending all their time reading philosophy and talking, consumed her. One problem, though. Fanny was engaged to a young man named Hugh Skies. And every time I saw this, I went, Hugh Skies! <laughs> I did the groovy sign. It's Hugh Skies! Oh, my gosh. But Hugh was in Portugal for business. So as far as Mary was concerned, this meant he didn't really love Fanny. So Fanny's future, fair game. She knew that in order to get a place for the two of them, that she would need a job. So with the help of Mrs. Clare, she became female companion to an old widow in Bath. In spring 1778, 19-year-old Mary took the public coach to the home of her new employer, the ill-tempered and arrogant Sarah Dawson who had already driven away a succession of companions. But Mary was made of stronger stuff than her predecessors. She disliked Miss Dawson, but saw this job as necessary evil. Thrown into the fashionable society for the first time, Mary complained about the insincerity of people's manners and sneered at, quote, The unmeaning civilities that I see every day. She accompanied Mrs. Dawson wherever she went, but was forced to remain on the sidelines, watching. Not speaking, not speaking unless spoken to, an enforced marginalization that infuriated her. It was all too reminiscent of her mother's punishments. She hated Bath and all of its extravagance. Imagine every movie you've ever seen about the 18th century. The tall, powdered hair, the big dresses, the white cake makeup with the drawn-on beauty mark. That was life in Bath. Mary wanted none of it. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen those movies. You've seen yeah, those period it's, shows. It's like the Alice in Wonderland where she's not wearing a corset and she's not wearing stockings. Yeah, yeah. It's like, big, I'd be the same the thing. Huge hoop, the huge the big white. There's pictures in the book of some extravagant hairs. I mean, and they went all fucking up. Putting stuff in their hair and building around it. I mean, it was ridiculous. And of course, as white as you could get your face with the drawn on beauty mark. I wouldn't have to use much makeup. You're you're pretty white, yes. <laughs> hey guys, have you been trying to grow out that beard? I know it took me a while to grow mine. Let me tell you about the people over at thebeardstruggle.com. 
They have the ultimate collection of beard growth and care products for guys who are just starting their beard journey and only have a little bit of stubble, all the way to men with glorious chin locks all the way down to their belly buttons. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 365-day money-back guarantee. And now, if you use my coupon code KevinY15 at checkout, you'll save an additional 15% off your order. So go to thebeardstruggle.com or use the link in our show notes and get everything you need to keep that face fur healthy. And don't forget the code KevinY15. That's K-E-V-I-N-Y-1-5 for 15% off today. Go. Now, Odin demands it. So she tried as hard as she could not to get noticed. But even as a hired companion, Mary attracted attention. She had loops of reddish gold hair. She had a perfectly shaped mouth and a womanly figure. Her skin was creamy, her cheeks pink. When she laughed or smiled, her face glowed with warmth. She loved to talk, as long as the topic was philosophy or literature, and she struck people as dramatic and acutely intelligent. Men were drawn to her, and she seems to have enjoyed a flirtation during her tenure with Mrs. Dawson, as some of her letters were found in the possession of distinguished older clergyman, Joshua Waterhouse, after he died. For a single man and woman to correspond during this period was unusual enough to mark the relationship as at least potentially romantic. Um, I've seen pictures and, and paintings of her. Today, she'd be kind of seen of maybe a little mannish, but back then, she was a knockout. She was beautiful. She was curvy. Uh, women, uh, men flocked to her. And women, most women were, let's say, intimidated by how she was. Because she had the birthing hips and she was what um, men wanted back then. And she was, somebody. A, and she was very, she was only 19 at the time. And to be, to, to be, you know, young and beautiful and, you know, sexy for the time. Most men were taken aback by the fact that she was opinionated and she could talk, not just, you know, giggle and faint at the side of a spider or something. She she could she could put she could hold a conversation. Yes. And that was an odd thing back then. Not every man liked that, but a lot more men that did than what you would think. Yes. She continued to work for Mrs. Dawson for a couple of years, and then in the fall of 1781, mother. Mary's mother developed an illness so grave that Mary could no longer withstand her sister's calls for help and reluctantly returned home. Her mother was painfully swollen from an unspecified disorder. Mary termed it as droopsy. Today, it is known as edema. Okay. The body-wide retention of fluid probably caused by a liver or kidney dysfunction. With each, with each month, Elizabeth's skin tightened further from the pressure, making it more and more difficult for her to move her limbs. By the spring, she was no longer able to feed herself. Her daughters had to clothe her, bathe her, try to soothe her pain. Ironically, it was Mary she leaned on the most, complaining bitterly if her eldest daughter left her bedside. Be nice to your kids at least a little bit. Yeah, karma's a bitch. Eventually they will take care of you. Until she was almost 23, Mary devoted her energy to caring for her mother. Then, April 19, 1782, Elizabeth slipped into a final coma, but she murmured words that Mary would remember for the rest of her life, in part because they were not at all 
what she wanted to hear. Quote, A little patience and all will be over. Mary's father arrived home with a new wife, Lydia, a few days after Elizabeth died. He had begun this affair while Elizabeth was alive, but no one knew how long they had been together. Taking Charles, the only son still living at the house, they moved to Wales, leaving Mary to pack up and distribute her, her mother's few possessions, find living quarters for herself and her sisters, and scrape money together for food and clothing. Mary tracked down Ned, talked him into hosting the two younger girls in a large house, and then, at Fanny's urging, she herself moved in with the Bloods. I, I really dislike how in the past, once your wife died, a few days later, you had a, a new wife. Yeah, they were, uh, I mean, he's obviously, the affair was going on for a while. Well, yeah, I mean, and, you I were mean, allowed it, to have affairs and your wife couldn't say anything, but. Not really, yeah. You, you just couldn't have another wife and then boom, your wife's dead and then now you're married again. And mm -hmm. it's like your kids don't exist anymore. What kind of drives me crazy is the fact that the other woman would see how he's treating his wife and just be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll marry him. Because he's not a stable guy. It's not like you're getting a bunch of money off he's of him. He's not going to act the same way he does with the new girl when he's doing it behind the back. Yeah, but you could still see what he's doing to his wife. Not necessarily because they do that behind closed doors. Yeah, I suppose. August 1783, the 24-year-old Mary Wollstonecraft became an aunt. Less than a year after 19-year-old Eliza married Meredith Bishop, she gave birth to a little girl whom she named Elizabeth after their mom. But that November, an urgent letter came from Eliza's husband. Eliza had gone mad. He begged Mary to come help. Eliza was having what Mary called fits of frenzy. Her eyes rolled back in her head. She shook as though she had fever. She muttered to herself and did not recognize her sister. The rest of the household was in chaos. Mary did what she could for Eliza, sitting with her for hours every day, cradling her in her arms, reading to her, praying with her, and taking her for drives in a coach. After a few weeks, Mary wrote Everina that the fits had stopped, but Eliza was not any more rational. Quote, her ideas are all disjointed, and a number of wild whims float on her imagination, and uncorrected fall from her. To Mary, it seemed likely that Eliza's delusions stemmed from, a tra from the trauma of childbirth, and that with careful nursing she would recover. The term postpartum depression had not yet been invented, and yet the time after birth was still widely known as a dangerous one for a woman, both physically and emotionally. At first, her theory, her theory seemed correct, as after a month or so Mary's, under Mary's watchful eye, Eliza slowly grew more coherent. Then came a new development. Mary noticed that her sister shuddered whenever Bishop approached, crying and accusing him of cruelty. Bishop seemed very worried and disturbed by Eliza's condition, and at first Mary was on his side, thinking he wasn't the type of man that could abuse his wife. But after talking to his friend and hearing them say he could be either, quote, lion or a spaniel, she started to wonder. That's how her father was, a good family man in public and a drunken fiend at home. At that time in history in England, the wife had no rights. The man, the man ran everything, owned everything, decided everything. The wife and children were his property. There was no such thing as marital rape. The man wanted it, then he got it. And women very rarely were able to petition for divorce since it seems that anything the man does in a relationship is his right since everyone involved 
was his property. Without legal protection, women were vulnerable to all sorts of abuses. Husbands could beat their wives, declare them insane. If a woman tried to flee, her husband had the right to bring her back by force. A man could starve his wife and keep her locked indoors. He could also prevent her from seeking medical care or having visitors who might help ease her suffering. For most women, death and desertion were the only ways to escape a miserable marriage. Mary was becoming more and more convinced that Bishop was having his way with Eliza, even in this distraught state. Mary couldn't bear to leave her sister in home with fear of what torture she might endure or the thought of her being sent to an asylum. So, by early January, Mary had made up her mind to get Eliza out. She contacted Ned about taking her and the baby in. They could have said it was a long family reunion, but Ned said no. Aww. Which meant they would probably have to leave the baby with Bishop, since Eliza technically had no claim to her. Mary said she would get Eliza out, come back for the baby when it was safe. The proficiency in which Mary laid out her strategy made it seem as though she had been preparing for this emergency all her life, and in many ways she had. Having failed to protect their mother, Mary was determined to save her sister from living as life as a victim. She reserved a room in a lodging house in Hackney, a village about five miles north of central London, stashed supplies for Ever- with Everina, who was still living in Ned's house on the other side of the river, and gathered up what little cash she could. When she whispered the plan to Eliza, her sister welcomed the idea, though she wept about not being able to take the baby. So, on an overcast January afternoon, when Bishop left the house after lunch, Mary quickly hailed a carriage, left the baby in the care of med- maids and wet nurse, loaded up her sister, and they took off. They even changed coaches to throw Bishop off the trail. In more than an hour of tense travel, they arrived at their quiet Hackney lodging house, where they registered using somewhat unimaginative aliases, the Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> I mean, I guess it works. It takes you an hour to get five miles. It's five miles north of London. Yeah, it takes you an hour to go five miles. I mean, it's back when it's horse and buggy, and they changed the carriage halfway through, but very movie-esque. Oh, let's change the carriage halfway through and throw them off the scent. Yeah, that's living wild. Uh-huh. Bishop didn't follow them. Instead, Bishop just refused to let Eliza see her daughter and cut her off without a penny. Even when there was evidence of cruel treatment, Sympathy for the runaway wife was hard to come by. Mary heard rumors probably spread by Bishop that she was to blame for being, quote, the shameful incendiary in this shocking affair, and for acting, quote, contrary to all rules of conduct. Fortunately for the Wollstonecrafts, their close friends remained loyal. Mrs. Clare traveled up to Hackney with food and wine and offered to lend them money. The Bloods invited them to stay in their home. However, despite this support, the Wollstonecraft name had been sullied. Remarriage for Eliza was out of the question without a divorce, and, given the scandal, it was unlikely that Everina would attract any suitors. To survive, the sisters would have to find jobs, but that was a possibility only if prospective employers had not heard about Eliza's situation. Mary's solution was something she had been dreaming of for years. They would start a school. Ooh. But she needed funding. Yes. And she needed students. Yes. She had also come to the new conclusion. 
After her immersion in the Bishop household, she realized Eliza's weakness was as much a problem as Bishop's anger and insensitivity. Frightened wives would never be able to stand up to their husbands, and cowering only made matters worse. If Eliza had been able to advocate for herself, she and Bishop might still be living together, and little Elizabeth would be raised by a strong, self-respecting mother. To Mary, this realization gave even more urgency to the idea of starting a school. Teaching girls to cultivate their minds and bodies so they could become independent would help create society in which wives could defend themselves and single women could exist on their own terms. Absolutely. In this utopia, there would be no more need to rescue women like Eliza. They would be able to rescue themselves. But even Mary Wollstonecraft could not start a school on the strength of her own zeal. She needed money, backers, and a building, all of which seemed impossible to obtain, until she met Mrs. Berg, the wealthy widow of the educator and author James Berg, a well-known activist for educational reform. None of Mary's biographers know how the two women met, though it is possible that they met through the Clares, but all agree that Hannah Berg offered Mary precisely what she needed in this crucial juncture of her life. Funding advice, practical support. They built the school in one of the most radically liberal areas of 18th century England, Newington Greens, in early 1784. Mary, along with her sister Eliza and Everina, left London to start teaching. Mrs. Berg gave them an old empty house to live in. It was the first time all three sisters had been together since their mother died. Aww. Huskies! was still away with his business and was showing no real want to come back and marry Fanny. So, Mary was able to convince her to move in with them and start teaching art and botany. That's what she did when, when they met. That's what Fanny was doing. She was drawing plants and flowers and describing them what parts are what to give to a publisher and they would put them in their books and sell them. So, that's how Fanny made her money. So, she knew all about art and she knew all about botany. Seemed like everything Mary ever wanted was falling into place. You're waiting for the butt? Yeah. Yeah. As it goes, all good things come to an end. Mary had hoped that her sisters would follow her lead. She hoped they would want to revolutionize the world one student at a time and help give equality to the next generation of women. She hoped that they would join with her in Newington Green's intellectual community. They did none of these. They didn't like teaching. They didn't like the long hours or the hard work it took to run a mostly all-girls school. Eliza was still recovering from leaving her family behind, and Everina was barely older than the students she was teaching. Neither of them could live up to the expectations and demands of what Mary wanted from and for the school. They would talk shit behind her back together, and tensions were constantly at a boiling point between the three. On top of that, Mary seemed to, fairy, to favor Fanny over them, and she would never take their opinions or suggestions to heart. Instead of partners, she treated them more like employees, which they weren't and didn't want to be. They wanted to be taken care of. They saw that as Mary's true purpose. She was the oldest sister, mother was dead, father was deadbeat, so it was supposed to fall on Mary just... We don't do anything. You pay for everything, and we just live our lives. That's what they wanted. Because that's kind of what it was expected back then. 
to make things worse, in August, a month before her baby's first birthday, Eliza received the terrible news that her daughter had died. Left in the care of maids and a wet nurse, the child had weakened and caught a disease. To Mary, this was further evidence of Bishop's villainy. He had probably neglected his daughter to punish his renegade wife. Eliza never voiced regret for her decision, but she was left with a depression she could not shake. Her freedom had been purchased at the cost of her child's life. Then, on top of that, Fanny's health was quickly deteriorating. Fanny had been battling tuberculosis off and on ever since Mary had first met her. Being in the damp, cool air of England wasn't helping. At the same time, Huskies had finally decide, decided that it was time to get married. Mary hated to see her friend go, but knew that the warm, dry air of Portugal, where Hugh's business venture was, would be a better place for her, and maybe even help with her healing. So, after some long discussions, family, Fanny decided to go, and in January 1785, she left. The next month, she wrote Mary to tell her she was pregnant with their first child. That didn't take long. And Mary was concerned. Childbirth was a dangerous undertaking, and along with Fanny's failing health, it seemed like almost impossible odds to overcome. Mary wanted to go be with her friend, but she knew she couldn't leave the school in the hands of her sisters. And no, it didn't take long. I imagine that the second she got there, they just started banging it out. They Well, back then they would have had gotten married first. Probably. I mean, that didn't take long either. He's like, we're getting married, and then they just go do it. Yeah. Yeah, probably. So, yeah, Mary wanted to go be with her friend, but she knew she couldn't leave the school in the hands of her sisters. By the fall of 1785, Mary could no longer assuage her worries about Fanny's health. She persuaded Mrs. Berg to lend her the money to book her passage to Lisbon. Lisbon. I should not say that because we said it in the William S. Burroughs. Passage to Lisbon. Though parents threatened to withdraw their children from the school if Mary was no longer at the helm, she brushed their concerns aside and set sail. Arriving after a 13-day voyage, just as Fanny's labor began, four hours after Mary walked in the door, Fanny gave birth to a baby boy. Oh, No. <laughs> but neither Hugh nor Mary could rejoice because Fanny was severely weakened by the ordeal. Over the next few days, she slowly faded away, brightening only when she held her child or saw Mary. By the end of the week, both she and the baby had died. Aww. For Mary, the loss was devastating. She tried to turn to faith, but she wrote to Fanny's brother that, quote, Life seems a burden almost too heavy to be endured. My head is stupid, and my heart is sick and exhausted. I can only anticipate misery. I hope I shan't live long. Mary returned to England, heartbroken. The school was in shambles. Most of the students had dropped out in her absence, and the few that were left were on the verge of dropping out. Mary didn't care. She kept blaming herself. If she hadn't convinced Mary to go to Portugal, she would have never gotten married, never had a child, still been alive. And now, a more pressing issue a more pressing issue loomed. Mrs. Berg had put up most of the financial backing for the school. Mary still had to take out loans for herself and her sisters to live off of while they were waiting for the school to turn a profit. 
And now those lenders were going to want their money back. Mary needed a job. An old friend, John Hewlett, suggested that she take her radical views and write a book. So, after the last student was gone from the school, she began writing. She wanted to show the world how difficult it was for single women to support themselves. In her heart, she linked this problem to Fanny. If Fanny had been able to make more money, she could have supported her family financially. She might not have left. She might not have felt the need to marry, and if she had not married, she would still be alive. Fueled by her sense of injustice, Mary felt her energy return. It was not fair that unmarried women like herself and her sisters had so few choices. She asked herself why women's options were so restricted. Not only was this bad for women, it was bad for the world. Within a few weeks, she had produced 49 pages of Thoughts on the Education of Daughters with Reflections on Female Conduct and the More Important Duties of Life. They weren't big on shortening uh, titles back then. No, they're very long. long. They made them pretty much as long as possible. Hewlett raced the finished manuscript to friend Joseph Johnson, one of the most famous publishers in London. Johnson was committed to the cause of reform. His authors were among the most radical of the era, including Benjamin Franklin, William Blake, Erasmus Darwin, grandfather of the famous Charles, Joseph Priestley, and William Cowper. Johnson instantly understood that Mary's book had commercial potential and invited her to come to the city to discuss the possibility of publication. At his office, he offered the 27-year-old spinster 10 pounds for the manuscript. So, okay, her father got 10,000 pounds before. Mm -hmm. 10 pounds is worth 1,500 today. Yeah, that's quite the advance. And she left with an unexpected path, one that led to a potential success in a literary career. 10 pounds was a lot, not enough to pay off all her debts. She still needed a full-time job. So in 1786, she became the governess for Lord and Lady Kingsborough of Mitchellstown, Ireland. She immediately hated it. I bet. (laughs) I don't want to watch some other brats (laughs) while I'm trying to make money to pay people back. The The poshness and the materialism that was there went against everything she stood for. She's living in a castle, for fuck's sake. Everything she hates. She saw the way the field hands and staff were treated and immediately sided with them over the Lord and Lady. Lady Kingsborough did try at first to get along with Mary. She would buy her gifts and invite her to parties and to dinner, but Mary would reject the gifts and decline the invitation. Even if she wanted to go to the party, she didn't have the money to buy a new dress or to pay a maid to put up her hair. This mystified the lady. She wanted a conventional governess. Mary was anything but conventional. If anything, she was more radical now than she was before, and it didn't take long before she started to expose it, especially when it came to the Lord and Lady's three daughters, Margaret, 14, Carolyn, 12, and Mary, 7. A few Marys in the story. Not quite as many Allens as was in Burroughs, yeah, but there's a few Marys in the story. Allens and Marys. Yeah. The lady had no time for the three children. She liked parties and gossip and went home, only wanted to spend time with her dogs. Mary remembered what it was like to be ignored by her mother and took pity on the girls. 
vowing to treat them better than she had been treated, even if the three had united in getting their new governess removed from the house. They, it was, you know, those, those movies where the new babysitter comes into the life or the new nanny comes into the life and the kids are just fucking horrible towards her and then at the end of it everybody's, you know, hugging and shit. It's this, you can pretty much base all of those movies off of her story. Yeah, that's how pretty it, much. Because they fucking hate her at that's, first. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Until one day when they became quite ill and the only one there to take care of them was Mary. This brought them to her side, especially Margaret, who in her 14 years of life had never really known parental love and kindness. Mary started teaching the girls things they should know not just things the lady wanted them to know, like dances, French, and needlework. Every morning, she took the children out for walks outside. An innovation for the sisters, who were used to being cooped up in the schoolroom, and created lessons based on their questions and observations. Concerned about their lack of compassion for the poor, she took them to visit the tenant farmers. In the schoolrooms, she, in the schoolroom, she not only talked to them about their ideas, she comforted them when they were worried or sad. Having never met a person like Mary, someone who took them seriously and actually cared about their feelings, by Christmas, all three girls were devoted to their governess. She fucking won them over. Margaret would let her later claim that Mary, quote, freed her mind from all superstition. She, Margaret, would eventually go on to flee from an unhappy marriage, disguise herself as a man, study medicine in Germany, and move with her lover to Italy, where she will befriend Mary's youngest child, who we will get to in episode three. Mm. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on the child a little bit on episode three, but we won't get to their friendship for like a six months or a year, and you'll find out why later. Ah, uh, Okay. Mary was still depressed about the death of her friend, and almost every night she would hide away deep in the castle and cry, sometimes for hours. Even the news that thoughts on education of daughters had appeared in the London bookstalls did not cheer her up. The following months became more and more tense between Mary and Lady Kay, as we call her, as Mary was unable to hide less and less of her contempt for the lady and the others in the home. That June, Mary devoted her time to what was fast becoming a novel. On the opening page in the novel, the novel's advertisement, as it's called, she announced that her heroine would not be a Sophie, in reference to Rousseau's heroine and Emily, but would be a woman with thinking powers, a character different from those generally portrayed by male novelists. Mary finished the first draft of Mary, late in the summer of uh, 1787. By the time it was completed, she was consumed with impatience at her own lowly position. Even Margaret's loyalty did not assuage her despair. She was tired of swallowing annoyances, enduring trivial conversations, and pretending she did not have opinions. In July, she, Lady Kay, had several full-blown arguments. By the end of August, her ladyship finally dismissed Mary, casting her out into the world without a job, or a place to stay. So, she packed up her shit, headed to London. As you do. Yeah, when you get fired in Ireland. Where she would meet up with Joseph Johnson, 
at his bookshop and give him her novel. They got along so well together that he invited her to move in with him, platonically. Completely platonic. Until he could find her a place of her own. She spent a little while with him in his house meeting writers and poets that would stop by. And later that, that fall, he found her a little yellow brick house at all her own. She decided not to decorate it. All she needed was a table, a chair, and a bed. Her job at the time was waiting, while waiting for her novel to be published, was to translate books from other languages, like French and German, into English. In the spring, 1788, only nine months after Mary had arrived in London, Johnson published two new books by Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary and Original Stories from Real Life. Mary, the novel, did not receive much notice from the critics. But Original Stories would become a staple of the advice literature on the moral development of children for almost 50 years. Nice. In this, her second book on education, Mary returned to the themes that she had emphasized in Thoughts on Education of Daughters. But this time, she went further, highlighting the need for ethical training for young girls by depicting a series of lessons taught by a governess she, saying, she named Mrs. Mason. Through Mrs. Mason, Mary demonstrated how easily girls can be educated. She also included an aggressive assault on the social and economic injustice, Mrs. Mason tells stories about the suffering of the poor, made even more graphic by the genius Johnson hired to do the illustrations, William Blake. Blake's six woodcuts for Mary's book depict desperate, haunted beggars and starving, hollow-cheeked orphans. Mrs. Mason not only teaches the importance of caring for the indignant, but also points an accusing finger at the callousness of the upper class, which Mary had witnessed while living on the Kinsborough estate. She'd witnessed it all her life, basically. Pretty much. She had experienced it. Yeah. Later that summer, despite her shaky language skills, she tackled two translations. A treatise by the French finance minister, Jacques Neckler, The Significance of Religious Theories, and a German educational book, Christian Salzman's Elements of Morality for the Use of Children. Now, why do I bring these up? What's special about these translations is that anyone that reads the original version and then the English version will notice a few changes. Yeah, I was going to say, she, she probably changed some things. Especially in the Salzman book. When she disagreed with the theory or thought the writer had skipped over an important fact or thought, she had no qualms with simply changing it. For example... She absolutely hated Salzman's love for the aristocrats and belief in what family should be, especially his belief that the wife should be completely subservient to the husband. Sometimes she would just omit complete passages, instead putting in her thoughts on things like the evils of female fashion and the importance of educating girls. She even changed the name of his heroine to what else but... Mary. Mary. And since her name wasn't on the text, if any controversy arose, the finger would be pointed at the author. Yeah, that makes sense. Nobody caught on. Not even Salzman. Until about 200 years later. Nobody had thought to take the two texts and put them next to each other and see how they lined up. Until like 
the 1950s, 1970s, something like that. That's fantastic. God, I love her. Mary was encouraged by the fact that no one greeted the Salzman translation with outrage. She felt increasingly confident about her abilities to express her opinions in print. And so, when Johnson and his friend, Thomas Christie, asked Mary to serve as one of the primary book reviewers for a new form of literature that would feature the writing of their intellectual circle and defend the cause of reform against conservatives, Mary was elated to accept their offer. This new challenge would allow her to develop her ideas and sharpen her skills as a member of a, sta- of a stable of writers rather than have to forge a liter- literary career entirely her own. And we will find out about that on episode two of Mary Wollstonecraft. Ooh, I like her more and more. She's got her ups and her downs. I, I love her. I think she's great. She's a little neurotic. She's a little, she's, she gets very insecure at times. She does some stuff that she's not proud of that there's going to be, uh, I don't want to give anything away, but she's not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. No one's perfect. She's going to make her fuck ups. Fuck ups that you're going to sit there going, why? Come on. But. It's just, it's life. I, I look back at some of my fuck-ups and I'm like, why? Yeah. Come on. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you will with her, too. She, it, but, um, but again, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. I love, the, the more I read about her, the more I, I, she's just a phenomenal person. I just, I love her. She's great. And again, she reminds me of you. She reminds me a lot of you. So, I was happy to read about her. Aw. Yeah. All right. Well. Like I said, these episodes are going to be a lot shorter. We're just, you know, going to keep this like these like hours. I mean, this episode, the next episode, the episode after that, they're going to vary a little bit, but we're going to try and keep them all about the same. You know, I was getting sick and tired of having to edit two two plus hour episodes, so it's <laughs> yeah. like this one's getting cut down. It'll be it'll be a three episode series, but you know, it is what it is. So uh, now let's go ahead and give our socials out. Okay, we are on Instagram and Twitter uh, at. Open a effing book. Mm-hmm. That's open a f i n g book. Um, we are at audio parfait. I am at e c j b a t, and you are. I gotta put my water down. I thought I had more time. <laughs> I speak uh, fast sometimes. I I am uh, at young etam on Instagram. Young etam six, I believe, on Twitter. I don't know. Just put in young etam. It'll come up. I need to fix it. I always say that, that I fucking never do. Uh, you can get a hold of us, info at audioparfait.com. Uh, let us know pretty much anything. You know, tell All us, those you want us to cover. Tell us we're doing a good job. Tell us we're doing a horrible job. We're, you know, And I'll tell you to fuck off. Yeah, maybe. Our website is audioparfait.com. You can see, you can see all the back episodes of this show. You can catch episodes of our other show. If you guys out there like wrestling... Or you hate wrestling, uh, you can go listen to that. It's, I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. It's, you know, it is what it is. It's a very clever name. Thank you. I came up with it. I know. But yeah, you know, go check that one out. Um, I'm always coming up with ideas for new ones. I just got to talk my wife into doing them with me. So, you know, we'll see how many more we can get out of there. Uh, we have our midday Cliff's Notes. Yes, we've now added a, added a, a second day of... Uh, of, of, of 
episodes for Open a Fucking Book, and they come out Wednesday or Thursday to whenever we can get around to, you know, actually recording the episode, and I can edit it. It's not a very. They're you not put it out Tuesday this week. No, I but I I put it out very last thing Tuesday, so it pretty much came out Wednesday. Uh, I've yeah. actually I thought I had scheduled it to come out Wednesday, but I think I just hit publish. And no. it came out came out on Tuesday. But sometime in the, the middle of the week, we try to put it out. It all depends on what we both feel up to uh, recording. Stephanie has kids to deal with all day. I got a bunch of people to deal with at my job all day. So sometimes we're not in the mood. But we always try to get out here at some point, get it recorded, edited, and put up. So you guys can enjoy that. Let us know what you think about that. Uh, if, if you feel so obliged, go to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash audio parfait. And we got... Uh, four tiers right now to choose from. Uh, we're going to have three episodes of this series. If you don't want to wait three weeks, uh, there's a tier on there you can uh, get into that you can get all of our episodes the second I'm done with them. I just put it in, and once once I'm done with it, it goes straight to your face. So if well, you, ears. If you, yeah, if you don't want to wait for three weeks to find out everything, and sometimes we, we start series before the other series is done. So you can get almost a full series in before the series before it is even over. So if that's something you want to do, we'd be, you know, very grateful for anybody who thinks that we deserve some money. And if you don't, yeah, whatever. It is what it is. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. It's all gravy, baby. We're still going to put it out. This is still free for you. So it's, it's, yeah. it's you know, whatever you want to do. Um, again, I've been saying this lately. Patronize your local bookstore and go to your library. A uh, lot of places. If need you your, can. A lot of places need your money. Well, library's free. If they're open. If they're open. But the more people they can get in to show that they're, you know, they're actually doing something, the more money they can get in. You know, government spending. You could also talk to your li- local library about getting free ebooks and free audiobooks as well. Volunteering, stuff like that. Anything you can do to help. The literary community is great. Check out, you know, you'll, you go online, check out some local authors, help them out, do whatever you can to help each other because right now things kind of suck and it's hard for everybody. So this is a book podcast, so go help out your local bookstore if you got a few extra dollars that you're wanting to get rid of. Go help out your local library. Uh, read to a kid, Edgar Allan Poe, if you can. <laughs> that book comes in tomorrow. Uh, yeah, tomorrow. And I am going to the second. I have books coming in today. The second that book comes in, I'm reading a little uh, little poet, Edgar Allan Poe, that we had discussed on uh, Weekend Cliff Notes a couple weeks ago. Weekday Cliff Notes. Yeah, Weekday Cliff Notes a couple couple weeks ago. So, um, well, I guess that's it. We said shorter episodes this time, so we're going to get the fuck out of here. Guys, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Between now, the time we get to talk to you next, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right, I'll see you. Bye, guys.